0: Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today's episode is a continuation of a little series that I'm going to do about what I might look for when a new student walks in and shows me the instrument that they're going to be playing on. I already did the episode about the banjo and just ran through a whole bunch of things that I would take a look at and I would, you know, try to show them things to look for and determine, are there some things that need to be done to make this instrument more playable? And secondarily, are there things that can be done to make the instrument sound better? You know, there's the physical side of it, and then there's the sound side of it. And they're both important, but physical is really important at the outset. Today, I'm going to do that for the imaginary bass player. I've taught bass lessons on and off for a long period of time. People just pop up. Sometimes I would have two or three students simultaneously and then I might go a couple of years and no new bass students appear. But I love a bass fiddle. I've always loved those things. There's just something cool about that massive behemoth of an instrument. It's just a cool thing. I've always really, really liked the bass fiddle. And I got my first one in 1978. Because I was planning on going off to college, going off to this cow college and going to study forestry. and But my real intention was to try to put a band together. And, of course, I wanted to be the banjo player. I've told this story in one of the early episodes. But I thought, you know, the best odds of putting a band together is to be prepared to play any of the bluegrass instruments. So when I went down there, my little old Dodge Colt, 1978 Dodge Colt was packed to the gills with a banjo, a mandolin, a guitar, a fiddle, and a bass fiddle. And a little grocery sack full of some clothes and a typewriter. That's what I went off to college with. Didn't even own a calculator. (laughs) Really didn't need one down there. Anyway, that first bass, that 1978 uh, that I acquired in 78, was a 1949K that I've I found an advertisement, probably in Creative Loafing or something like that in Atlanta. And I remember going to the guy's house and he said, uh, yeah, I mostly play jazz and uh, I'm going on the road and I'm going to be playing nothing but electric, so I need to sell this thing. So I think I paid 300 bucks for it, for this 49 k And while I was in, in the guy's house down in Midtown Atlanta, It started raining and it was dark when I got there. And it was pouring rain when I left the guy's house. And I was in that little 78 Dodge Colton. I didn't really even know if it would fit in it. He had a bag for it one of these kind of vinyl on the outside and lined with flannel on the inside, zipper bag. So I, you know, I wasn't too worried about getting wet. And I managed to squeeze that thing into my car by tipping the it was a two-door by tipping the passenger seat all the way back uh shoving the the bottom end, the big end of the base all the way into the back uh (laughs) the back windshield way up there cramming it in there and barely just got the neck down where you put your feet on the passenger side and the door closed it was amazing but I couldn't hardly shift. It was a little manual transmission, five-speed, and I couldn't hardly... I I had a lot of trouble even getting it into reverse, because that base was starting to spread out right about where you need to shift. And it was pouring. I mean, it was a toad floater. The rain was just coming down. The windshield wipers would do nothing. You know, I mean, they were wiping it off, and it was coming down as fast as it was... You know, as fast as the wiper would wipe it off, it'd just be rain. You know, I couldn't see squat. And I'm down there in a, kind of a part of town I don't know. Can't hardly fit in the car because of that bass fiddle. And I, I put it in gear and I got to get out of town and get back down to Jonesboro. And I, I made a couple of turns through this little neighborhood, like somewhere around 5th Street in that area. And I, I'm just trying to find my way way back over to I seventy five and wouldn't you know it? Next thing I know I got blue lights flashing in my rearview mirror. I got a cop has pulled me over. And it is pouring rain. And this cop, he's got his rain slicker on, he's got his, you know, plastic cover over his hat and he, he comes up to the door and I, I roll down the window. And he's shining a flashlight in my face. And he said, I don't know if you know it, but you're going the wrong way down a one-way street. (laughs) And I was like, oh, man, I I can't even see the signs it's raining so hard. He said, well, turn that thing around and go the other way. And he just walked back to his car, turned his lights off and drove away. And I turned, made a U-turn. And actually, that helped me because that put me straight towards I-75. And I, I got on and made it home. Anyway, that's how I acquired my first bass. That old 49K, I love that thing. Now, imagine you're a you're my bass student and you show up for your first lesson and you come struggling through the door with your bass and you unzip your bag and pull that thing out and the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, eyeball that bass and have a look at it and see if it's see what you got and see if it's in condition to play. So, I'm going to go over a list of things that I would look at. Uh, The first thing I'm going to take a look at, you know, other than just the basic geometry, is there a bridge on it and do we have four strings, is I'm going to take a look at what kind of strings you got, because there's a pretty good variety of strings, and if somebody has just bought one of these uh, Chinese carved bases, one of these real cheapo import bases, a lot of times they'll come with gut strings on there. Now I'm not going to tell that student, oh, you can't use these strings. You got to have these, you know, because they've already forked out a bunch of dough for the bass, and bass strings are very expensive. But I kind of want to know what they got, you know. And you'll see a lot of gut strings coming out of China. I guess they got a lot of gut laying around. I don't know. It's um, I, I'm not going to talk too much about gut strings. There are people that like them. I don't like them. They're too humidity affected and I don't like the tone of them. And I, I, I prefer a, um, steel core, you know, wrap string. I, I use super flexible. It's the super flexible rope core, uh, bass orchestra, three quarter size, which is a medium gauge, uh, by Tomastic. That's what I use. But it doesn't mean the student needs to use that. But the three basic categories you have are steel core of some kind, either a solid steel core or a or a braided steel core, like spiro cores, you know, that kind of thing, or these super flexibles. It's kind of a cable, and then the the windings are wound around that. That's the first kind. And it's essentially an all metal string. And it gets its flexibility because that core is a braid rather than just what well, could be a solid piece of steel. But if they're a braid, they're a little more flexible under the fingers. And I think they produce a little bit better tone, in my opinion. Then there are synthetic core. There are certain types of strings that are that are made with a synthetic core. I guess they're imitating a gut string and are wrapped with the metal windings so those exist out there too and later on in a minute I'll, I'll tell you why that's important to know which kind you have then there is the old super nils or nylon strings they're just made of nothing but nylon i i think maybe the bigger ones do have some kind of a, a metallic core or metallic wrap around them but basically there's a type of string called super nil and they're essentially a nylon string, and I've seen some newer varieties of nylon strings out there today. And they're you see them a lot at bluegrass uh, festivals and people that that play bluegrass. A lot of times you see these nylon strings, and I just want to say a couple things about them. I have had them on my bass. In fact, the the uh, one of the bases I bought, I got it and it had these super nils on it. And I pretty quickly took them off and went back to the super flexibles just for tonal reasons. But one of the things people the reason people like these nylon strings is they're really flexible and they're they're softer under the fingers and they're not as brutal on the hands. So a lot of people that don't play bass a lot, but, you know, kind of the weekend warrior or the occasional festival or, you know, like the wife that has been conned into being the bass player. Those nylon strings are a lot easier on the hands. However, they are also very, very uh, flexible. And when they vibrate, they vibrate in a larger arc. That string has to have a lot more room to move around. You know, picture a giant rubber band uh, as as opposed to maybe a, a steel wire. The steel is not going to vibrate in as wide of an arc. So bottom line is this. If you're using nylon strings, typically you're going to have to have your action a lot higher to give those strings clearance so they don't bash against the fingerboard and, you know, make a lot of buzzes and stuff. But, you know, on the, on the good side, they're really easy on the hands. So there are super nails out there and nylon strings. I just kind of want to see what they got. And sometimes you'll find people show up that have kind of a mixture of strings, you know, a string broke and they went to a music store and, you know, they got a set of super nils and then there's this one steel string on there. So just kind of want to take stock of the strings, see see what they're dealing with. Then I want to look at the bridge. Uh, you know, the bridge a lot of times on a bass will begin to tip towards the fingerboard because as you tighten the string it pulls the bridge in that direction a little bit and you know if you're not observant of your bridge geometry over time especially if you put a new set of strings on and they're in the process of stretching out and especially nylons if you put a set of nylon strings on your base you're going to you're going to tune it up, and the next day, tune it again, and the next day, it's going to be a whole step flat, and you're going to tune it again, and those strings just stretch and stretch and stretch until they finally reach their their point of maximum stretch. You've got all the stretch out of them. It's just like plastic banjo heads. Eventually, that's, that the string's going to stop stretching. Well, while you've been doing all that cranking up, it's the tuners are like a winch, and you're just pulling that bridge over and until it may be leaning so you need to get down lay that base down on the floor and get down and and take a look at the bridge itself and i know it's a curved surface on the top of the base but kind of get a general feeling for how vertical is that face of the bridge that faces the neck you know kind of in an ideal world you could put a, a 90 degree square right there and have that, that face of the bridge that faces the fingerboard 90 degrees to the top. That would be ideal. And then the back side of the bridge that faces the tailpiece will slope. As they're wedge shaped, and the sloping side will be on the tailpiece side. But as you crank and crank and crank and keep tuning up, 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 you can tip that bridge over and i've seen it happen the bridge collapse just bam it just falls over it's driven down and you know if you got the thing tilted far enough there's going to come a day when it's going to sound like somebody snuck up behind you with a 22 pistol pow and that's the sound of your 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 bridge tipping over okay so i'm going to take a look at that is it pretty much standing upright like it's supposed to and if it's standing upright the feet of the bridge will be squarely contacting the top so I just want to see that if it's leaning a little bit towards the fingerboard i do not recommend i've seen people do this i've seen base experts do this i don't like it and and that is the they'll, they'll kneel down around the the end pin take the right hand and stick a finger in between each string and grab that bridge and just jerk it and pull that thing, you know, maybe a quarter of an inch or three eighths of an inch, just yank that thing under full tension. I've seen people do it to, to stand that bridge right, right up. I've seen people like take a karate chop motion and chop on that bridge in between the strings to just knock it over and try to knock it upright. I don't recommend you do that, and here's why. There's a lot of friction between the string where it's resting on the top of the bridge. And if you just jerk that bridge upright, you may actually damage the wrappings on the string. I've seen a lot of bases where... The, st- the string looks really good until you examine the string right where it goes over the top of the bridge. And you'll see the windings pulled apart and separate a little bit. And sometimes you can even see the core of the string peeking out. And sometimes there'll be little, little fibers, like little silk fibers or something underneath the wrap. And you'll see that peeking out. And that's how that damage occurs, is by somebody yanking on the bridge while that string's under tension. So a much better way to handle that if the bridge needs to be st- stood upright, a little squared up a little bit, is to loosen the strings somewhat. You don't have to get them all the way down super slack. In fact, you don't want to do that. But you know you can lower them down about a whole step, get your G string down to about an F, and just take some of the tension off, and that takes some of the down force off of that string, and now you can you can pull a little bit without damaging the string. Another thing that can be done is to lubricate the top of the bridge. Those little notches where the string sits, if there's a, a good application of graphite in that slot, maybe then you could actually move that a little bit and not damage the string. So sometimes, you know, when I'm doing a base setup, and I wouldn't be doing this at the first lesson or anything... Uh, but if they leave the base with me and they say, Hey, can you set this thing up? One of the things I'm going to do is one by one, loosen a string just enough that I can lift it out of the slot and lay it over to the side and take the old pencil lead, which actually I don't like using lead pencils because they're not 100% graphite. They do have some clay filler in there gluey type stuff. So the best thing is pure 100% graphite. And I've got some sticks of it that I carry around in my piano kit. Or you can get the powdered graphite. But put some on there and take something like a bamboo skewer or something and just rub and rub and rub, burnish that graphite down into that, the wood fibers. Just get that, that little slot just slicker than, I can't say that on podcast, get it slick. Then lift your string back up in there. You didn't take all the tension off. Lift it back up and tune that string up. Then go to the next. There's sort of a a rule in dealing with basses that it's bad practice to loosen all of the strings all the way. In other words, don't take off all your strings. You want to go one at a time, please. This goes for string changing. If you change strings, lay the bass on its back, get a pillow up under the heel, so the peg head's not resting on the floor, loosen one string, change that string, put it back on. Good time to graphite the bridge and that's a great time to put one or two very small drops of oil in the proper places on the tuning key because you're about to do a lot of cranking at the thing. It's a good way to distribute the oil. So do one string. Then do the next, then the next. And by doing that, you're maintaining the majority of the tension on the bridge. And here's why that's important. You got a sound post inside. And, you know, a lot of new students show up with their bass, don't even realize there is a sound post in there. But the sound post is a dowel stick. It's around three quarters of an inch in diameter. A spruce rod and it's inside the base, and it's held in by friction. It, it's positioned underneath, usually partially underneath, the treble-side foot of the bridge, and it goes all the way across to the back. And a lot of times there's a little, a little sheet, a little circular sheet of maple or something glued onto the back there, a little pad for that thing to rest on and it's wedged in there. Now moving that soundpost around alters the tone and volume of the bass and that is far beyond you know an amateur on his on day 1 monkeying around with with that soundpost. But you do want to confirm that you have a soundpost and that it is more or less in place. But what happens is you got all that string pressure pushing down on the on the bridge. And that's squeezing the the face of the bass towards the back and pinching that soundpost in there. If you walk up to a bass and start loosening all the strings, maybe even take them all off, that bass is going to expand a little bit and the soundpost can fall over inside the bass and just be rattling around. Now you've got a real problem. You gotta figure out you can't reach your hand in there. How are you gonna stand that thing back up? And there's tricks like the old tie a string around it, and you know, there's a tool, a soundpost setting tool that can be used to grab a hold of it. But you don't have that stuff and you've never done it. You don't want your soundpost to fall over. So one of the things that I recommend that every bass player eventually acquire, and that is a shot bag. What you do is you go down to the Army Navy store or some well-stocked sporting goods store and you walk in there and you say i would like a 40 pound bag of lead shot and i walked in there one time they they think you're a reloader like you're going to reload shotgun shells or something and this bag will be about 12 inches long and about six inches wide and about three inches thick it'll be a sack that you can't hardly even lift it weighs 40 pounds of lead shot I bought number, uh, I think number seven. So you buy this sack of lead, tiny little lead pellets, and that Joker is heavy. And it's really useful. Most guitar shops will have a shot bag around. Now, what I did with mine is it, it comes in kind of a plastic, like a, I don't know, some sort of synthetic bag bag. I took uh, an old pair of blue jeans that had got a hole in the knee, and I the bottom part, you know, where your shin goes, save that and uh, sew it, sew it up into a bag with a drawstring, and slide that. That don't even open the shot bag; just shove it in there and sew that baby closed. Now you got a cloth bag, and it's sort of semi-flexible. A lot of guitar builders and repairmen use this shot bag to lay a neck on when they're driving frets in when they're hammering frets into the fingerboard because it's a great shock absorber that that bag of that loose lead shot will absorb a lot of blows hammer blows and keep you from dinging up the neck of an instrument that kind of thing they're also just a great weight and they conform to whatever you lay them on so what i do when i'm going to change strings on a base or if I need to remove the strings for any reason at all I'm going to lay the base on its back wedge some pillows under it so that it's making good contact with the floor and then I'm going to lay that shot bag right in front of the bridge or, or behind it either side of the bridge and I'm applying 40 pounds of force with that bag down onto the top squeezing that sound post now I can remove my strings and let the weight of that bag play the role of compression and it can just lay there and uh, you can take the strings off put them back on monkey around with the the bridge maybe you need to you know work on the, the feet of the bridge and stuff like that but that shot bag will prevent that soundpost from falling over if you lay the bass on its back Hoist that forty-pound sack up there. It's really cool too um, when they're when that shop bag is laying on your bench and you know some little kids you know looking around. You say, "Hey, son, uh, see that bag over there? Hand me that bag." <laughs> and they, they can't even imagine that that sack weighs forty pounds. It's it's pretty cool. Okay, next thing I'm going to take a look at on their base is the tailpiece. And, you know, just just have a look at it and see if it's cracked or anything. I'm also going to look at the end pin. Most, you know, beginners, they know there is an end pin, but they don't know how far to adjust it up or down. I want to see if that thing will actually hold. You know, can you tighten it and, and have it hold while you're playing it? So I'm going to scope out the end pin. And the end of the end pin, you know, and the In the old days, like bassists and cello players would have a sharpened end pin, and when they'd walk out on stage, they'd just jam that spike into the floor of the stage and let the whole stage act as an amplifier for their instrument. I think they kind of frown on that in concert halls these days. (laughs) Watch a cello player come out and go boink and stick it in their $80,000 floor. Although they still do it. And I think they kind of give the give them a pass. You know, like the real high-dollar guest performers, they get a pass on that. But these days, most of the time, you got some kind of a rubber tip on the end of that thing, a crutch tip. So scope that thing out because you don't want your, your base eating a hole through the floor of your living room. And there's all sort of crazy ways I've seen people rig up protective devices i I saw a guy had a he bought a baby shoe uh, like a the tiniest little leather shoe you ever saw and he he must have filled it with epoxy or something and just stuck it on the end of the end pin so he had this little shoe on the end i've seen people do stuff with tennis balls and all kind of weird stuff but have a look at that so that your your base isn't digging holes in the floor. I've already talked about the sound posts. Make sure you got one and make sure it's in there. If it fell over, it's probably rattling around in there somewhere. Look at the tuning machines. You know, are they bent? Are they missing parts? I mean, will they actually turn? That kind of thing. So I'd probably, you know, turn them a little bit left and right and see if they actually do anything. Uh, then I'm going to take a take a good look at the seams around the edges. Basses take a lot of abuse because they're big. And, you know, there's this uh, old saying that every third time a bass player walks through a door, he will hit the door frame with the bass. And that has proven true in my case. About every third time, one out of three times you're walking through a door, you're going to hit the thing. Not to mention the fact that during breaks and in between sets and stuff, people, you know, set the bass on its side and maybe you're playing on concrete and that is just chewing up the sides of your base. And they take a lot of physical abuse is what I'm saying. And the edges, you know, bear the brunt of this and a good old, my, you know, a good old bass, like my old 49 K it's, it's battle scarred. It is, it looks rugged. And about once a year, I, I, set it up on a on a rug in the living room maybe some weekend my wife's gone or something and I'll spend the weekend just examining it and looking at all the edges and all the seams and there's so many plywood bases out there these days the, the the little laminations there's five layers of wood on the face of a K guitar uh, K bass same on the back five ply plywood and those little seams will you know, start to separate sometimes from impact or from humidity or just wear and tear and age. And you can work your way around and you just kind of pulling and pushing and seeing if anything, if you can see cracks. So what I'm looking for with the student base, is there anything really serious going on here? You're you're almost always going to find some little seams that need to be reglued. But do we have anything major? Like, is there a six inch section here that, I can pull that thing apart and actually stick my finger in, you know. You're just looking for failed glue joints. And, you know, just take your time, work your way around and have a good look at it. Um, as a bass owner, especially, you know, bluegrass player dragging a bass around to outdoor festivals and camping with it and hauling it around the back of a pickup truck. Over time, you're going to need to periodically have a look at that base and get those seams glued back up. And I think it's an easy enough task that you can learn to do it. I'm not going to talk about that in this episode. Maybe I will one day. It's pretty simple if you got a lot of patience and, you know, a bottle of glue, some little feeler gauges, a damp rag, and, you know, some clamps. Anyway... Talked about the majority of the things that I'm going to have a look at. Um, One of the things that, you know, I mentioned in the banjo thing is how's the action? How high are the strings above the fingerboard? How far do you have to mash them down to get them to play? All that's true for a bass, too. It's just a lot more difficult to adjust the action. You don't have a truss rod. You can't do anything about the bow of the neck unless you were to get out a plane and start shaving on that fingerboard you you can attack the nut the same way you do any instrument it's just a really big nut but it works the same as as a nut on a guitar or mandolin and so the slots can be made deeper and of course graphite it up so that the string slides through them nice and easy when you're tuning but i'm going to take a look at the nut um it's usually not too critical because Most bluegrass bass players don't, they don't play a whole lot of first fret or first position notes. I mean, they do, but they don't when they're starting out. If you're playing in G or in D or in A, you're rarely going to hit those notes, at least as an absolute beginner. When you play the key of F and B flat, things like that, you will, so the nut becomes more crucial. Um, you know, get somebody that knows what they're doing with a base to have a look at it if, if you feel like the nut is too high, if you get it too low, you're going to have buzzes and rattles. So you don't want that. But what I've noticed a lot of times with bases is, is somebody will buy a base and it's got steel strings on it and it hurts their fingers. So they get them a set of super nils. and they slap them on there. Well, the, the super nils are larger diameter, so they don't fit down into the slots perfectly. In fact, many times there's a a little gap at the bottom of the slot where the string is actually held up in the V-shaped slot because it's not the same diameter. So, you know, sooner or later, get that stuff straightened out, get your nut worked on and customized to the strings that you intend to play on. Because if you take 10 sets of bass strings, you're going to have 10 different diameters and you want the diameter of your nut to match your string and with just about a couple of thousands of an inch of clearance. So it'll travel through there. So look at that as something you need to do maybe down the road. Once you've determined the kind of strings you like, same goes for the slots in the, in the bridge. Um, one of the things that, um, I have done a lot over the years because you can't easily raise and lower the bridge. There are bridges that have big old thumb screws on them and they're made in, two parts so that you can screw them kind of like a mandolin bridge. You can adjust these screws, these bridge adjusters and raise and lower the height of the bridge a little bit. They're really cool. I have used them on my base before. Um, and that can help you accommodate, you know, humidity changes from winter to summer. But again, remember when you do, if you have those base bridge adjusters and you raise and lower them, do your bass a favor and take off a little bit of that string tension before you crank them up and down, or you'll strip the threads out. There's a lot of downforce. Just get your shot bag out, put it on its back, let the shot bag maintain a little tension. Then you can loosen the strings a bit and raise that bridge up. Going down, I suppose, theoretically, you could go down a little easier. But another thing that I've done with a lot of bases is installed shoe leather feet on the bottom of the feet instead of wood to wood. I've ran across a lot of bass players that like this and I really like it. And that is you get that really, really rock hard shoe leather. Like they used to make the soles of dress shoes out of, and they would stack that leather and glue it together to make heels. That's the kind of leather I'm talking about. It's hard. You almost have to saw it to cut it. And I will cut a piece of that and glue it onto the bottom of each foot. And that leather will conform itself just perfectly to even the grain lines of the top. And uh, I like the tone. So if I need to raise the bridge, sometimes I'll just loosen up things and slip in another piece of that shoe leather with a dot of glue I don't put glue on the base. I just put it on the bridge. And now I've gained an eighth of an inch in height and, you know, summer, you know, if humidity changes and I need to lower it. I can remove one of those layers. Anyway, that's a, that's a possibility. Something you might look at. There is also the consideration of the bag. I'm going to, you know, have a look at the bag. Uh, that very first base I had the, uh, we took it out one weekend to a bluegrass festival and it rained a little bit and, The bag got damp, got damp on the inside. So we brought the base home in the back of a pickup truck wrapped in a tarp. When we got back to college, I spread that base bag out on top of some bushes outside the dorm room window, just letting the sun dry the insides of that thing out. Well, sometime during the day, one of the maintenance guys came along and just found it laying there and hauled it off and threw it away. (laughs) So I didn't have a base bag for a couple of years and used to have to, you know, carry a a tarp and blankets and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, take a look at your base bag, you know, examine it. Does it need a little bit of work on the seams? You know, you don't want to be lugging that thing around by those handles and have one of those handles bust loose and you drop it down a flight of stairs or something. So have a look at your bag, you know. Um, another thing that I do, I've got a nylon bag that's kind of lined with a little bit of flannel-y type stuff. And about every other year, I'll take that thing out in the yard and drape it over a sawhorse or something and get me a can of that Scotch guard and hose that thing down real good. It's supposed to waterproof and kind of rainproof the fabric. And I found that it really does work. It kind of makes, you know, if you're in a little misting rain, it sort of makes it beat up on there instead of just soaking right in. Because you get that bag wet and then stuff your base in there, you're just asking for those seams to come apart. And the last thing I can think of, uh, something that I do with my base, because it's so beat up and the edges are so raw, you know, they got a lot of road rash on them, is that when I finish that annual examination and re-gluing, you know, and I've got all the seams, I can't find any seams that are separating, I've glued them all up and clamped them all up, I will take... I use orange shellac, just, you can buy it at Home Depot or something, just a little can of orange shellac, and I'll cut it down a little bit with alcohol, just a little bit. I'll just take a Q-tip, and I, I just sit there on a little milking and stool and dip that Q-tip into that orange shellac, and I just kind of roll that Q-tip along those bare wood, wherever I've found a little scar, you know, and I see that white spruce or maple, you know, shining at me. I'll just kind of roll and let a little of that orange shellac soak into the wood. And it, um, in my opinion, this is just my opinion. I'm sure some violent expert would say, Oh no, don't ever do that. I think it just sort of seals the edges just a little bit and helps if you have to, you know, momentarily lay that thing down in some dewy grass, you know, it's not going to soak up the water quite as rapidly as bare wood would. I don't, you know, suggest you take polyurethane and do anything like that. But, you know, a little bit of orange shellac, and it kind of tones down that bare wood ruggedness of it. And it's a pretty decent match for the color of most bases. Anyway, just a little bit of that, you know, I think helps kind of seal off those edges from from the ravages of humidity and moisture. Anyway, this is enough talking about basses. If you're not a bass player, I'm sure you've gone to sleep by now. But, hey, all you people that don't play the bass, um, show a little love for your bass playing cohorts. They don't get much respect, and they always get all the blame for any kind of timing issues. They always point their finger at the bass like it's his job to maintain the timing, which is totally not true. Yeah, he needs he or she needs to play in time, but so does everybody else, you know? Everybody has that responsibility. And the think of the the poor beast of burden, they have to carry that thing around with them, and they very rarely do they get in the limelight and get to take any solos or anything there. They're just there to make you sound better. So how about show some love to the bass players? Y'all take care and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. I want three, four. Why? Why'd you do that? Why'd I do what? I'm just standing here. That's cool, right? That's just it. It, How come you always do nothing? Why? Why'd you do that?